0: J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Well, at least Joe Biden's new puppy hasn't bitten him yet.
1: that we know of. The lead starts right now. An awful week for the president. Only getting worse. Right now there is a group of Russian operatives inside Ukraine, and according to a U.S. intelligence official, those operatives are looking to create a false pretense for Vladimir Putin to give the orders for Russians to invade. We're going to talk to the president's national security adviser. Then, in a sign of just how overwhelming the Omicron variant is, two of the country's largest pharmacy chains are shutting down some stores because so many of their employees are out sick. And. The world's number one male tennis player may not even get a chance to play. Novak Djokovic is once again on the verge of being kicked out of Australia. He's meeting with immigration officials right now and is about to be detained. Hello and happy Friday. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We begin this hour in our politics lead in a bruising week for President Biden. Nearly a year into his presidency, he is surrounded by dead ends and crises. The fate of his economic agenda is uncertain. His push for election reform appears to be withering on the vine. The U.S. Supreme Court swatted down his vaccine mandate for big businesses. The pandemic is continuing to rage. Inflation is soaring. North Korea is firing missiles eastward. Russian troops are poised to move westward. As talks to de-escalate tension around Ukraine went nowhere fast, as CNN's Caitlin Collins reports, President Biden, who in one poll this week stood at only 33 percent approval, desperately needs a reset as he embarks on his second year in office.
2: President Biden's week going from bad to worse.
3: There's a lot of talk about uh, disappointments and things we haven't gotten done. We're going to get a lot of them done, I might add, but This is something we did get done.
2: Biden highlighting his infrastructure bill after being forced to confront one setback after another, putting his presidency in a perilous position as he approaches one year in office. The truth is an agenda doesn't wrap up in one year. A key component of Biden's legislative agenda was brought to a halt after two Democratic senators rejected his call to overhaul
4: Senate rules to pass federal voting laws. Right now, uh, we're dealing with the realities of the fact that we have uh, a very slim majority uh, in the Senate and in the House Uh, that makes things more challenging than they have been in the past. Senate Democrats also
2: going after the White House on testing asking in a new letter why officials didn't act sooner to ramp up supply amid the Omicron surge. Starting next week, the administration will distribute half a billion tests for free nationwide, which are expected to take seven to 12 days to ship and are limited to four per household. This week, the centerpiece of Biden's effort to mandate vaccinations was also dismantled by the
4: Supreme Court alongside a blistering opinion. We're, of course, immensely disappointed by that decision. It's now up to the states and individual employers to put in that place vaccination requirements.
2: On the foreign policy front, Biden's top aides were also unable to convince their Russian counterparts to withdraw troops from the Ukrainian border amid concerns of an incursion.
5: It is certainly the case that the threat of military invasion is high.
2: Meanwhile, the White House is pointing to other markers of a
4: successful first year. The other way to look at uh, the last year is that uh, 200 million Americans are now vaccinated. Uh, More than 80 percent of Americans have received at least one dose. If you look back to a year ago, only about 35 percent of people were willing to do that.
2: And Jake, coming off this very challenging week for President Biden, Press Secretary Jen Psaki did confirm he will hold a formal press conference next Wednesday at 4 p.m. Eastern, where, of course, he will face questions on all of this, from testing to what's happening in Ukraine. That will come one day before he marks one year in office.
1: All right. That'll be during a special edition of The Lead, I guess, next Wednesday at four. Caitlin Collins, thanks so much. And our world lead, the Pentagon says it has very credible intelligence, indicating that Russia has pre-positioned a group of operatives ready to conduct a false flag operation in eastern Ukraine. This kind of operation in which an attack against Russia is faked by Russians would therefore create some sort of pretext for Putin to order a Russian invasion of Ukraine. CNN's Natasha Bertrand joins me now live. Natasha, what more do we know about this group of operatives and what does it mean for the standoff at the Ukrainian-Russian border?
6: Well, what we know, Jake, according to U.S. officials, is that these operatives, who Russia has allegedly pre-positioned in eastern Ukraine, are trained in urban warfare and in using explosives. And they're potentially uh, preparing to carry out attacks of sabotage against Russia's own proxy forces. And what U.S. officials are telling us is that would preface any invasion using the Russian forces stationed at Ukraine's borders right now, because it would give the Kremlin an excuse to say that it was only acting in self-defense and thereby justify an invasion. Now, notably, the administration now believes this could lead to that Russian attack and it could result in widespread human rights violations and even war crimes should diplomacy fail to meet their objectives. And according to all U.S. officials who have spoken to CNN this week, adding to the apprehension is the fact that these diplomatic talks this week between the U.S., Russian, and NATO officials in Europe that have been aimed at de-escalating those tensions and averting a war as Russia has continued to build up these forces have yielded no breakthroughs. There have been no agreements by the Russians to pull back those forces. So alongside all of this, the U.S. has also seen Russian influence actors begin to prime russian audiences for this kind of intervention and that includes by emphasizing narratives about the deterioration of human rights in ukraine increased militancy of ukrainian leaders kind of creating this perception that it is dangerous right now in ukraine for ethnic russians so all of this is adding up to u.s officials as a very ominous sign of where things are heading
1: and natasha the biden administration says that this is the same playbook russia used in 2014 for their invasion and annexation of crimea How similar is this operation?
6: Well, U.S. officials are comparing this to 2014 because Russia used the politically kind of chaotic situation in Ukraine following the ouster of the pro-Russian president Viktor Yanukovych at the time in 2014 to justify that incursion into Crimea. They said that Russia had a duty to protect ethnic Russians from the instability and dangerous volatility that Ukraine was experiencing at the time. And Vladimir Putin is using very similar justifications uh, right now, Jake.
1: All right, Natasha Bertrand, thank you so much. And joining me now to discuss is the National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan. Jake, thanks for joining us. I want to start with your reaction to CNN's reporting that the U.S. has very credible intelligence indicating Russia is preparing a false flag operation in order to create a semblance of a justification for a Russian invasion of Ukraine. You hinted at this during a briefing yesterday. How can you be confident that the intelligence here is accurate? This is a very strong claim to make about Russia. What's
5: the proof? Well, first, I'm not going to get into the details of the intelligence beyond what has been reported in the press. But I think the most compelling thing, Jake, which anyone who has watched closely in Ukraine or with Russian activities elsewhere on its periphery would tell you is that this is straight out of the Russian playbook. Uh, This is what they did in Ukraine in 2014. They've done it in another context. And so it, do, it comes as no surprise uh, that they would be planning for the possibility of creating a pretext. Now, I say possibility because, of course, the intelligence community does not yet assess that President Putin has made his decision, but they are putting themselves in a position to try to create a circumstance in which they try to put the blame on the Ukrainians when, in fact, it is the Russians that are causing the escalation in this situation.
1: Ukrainian government websites, as you know, were targeted in a massive cyber attack overnight. It is not clear yet who is behind the attack. Ukraine is pointing a finger at Putin and Russia. Do you believe that
5: the Kremlin is to blame? We haven't made an attribution on that, and we like to be disciplined in the way that we go through uh, the technical specifications of the attack, and trace it back to where it came from. As soon as our experts have done that, we'll be prepared to attribute. I will also say, though, this too is part of the Russian playbook, to engage in cyber activity of this kind. On the other hand, this was a relatively unsophisticated attack. Uh, We don't think that some of the claims made on the website when they were hacked about all the data getting grabbed and leaked and so forth have borne out yet, so we're still getting to the bottom of it.
1: The former Ukrainian defense minister wrote in an op-ed for the Atlantic Council this week that, quote, given the right equipment and tactics, Ukraine can dramatically reduce the chances of a successful invasion, unquote. At one point, is the Biden administration prepared to offer military support to Ukraine that, that goes beyond just defensive capabilities?
5: The focus of our uh, defensive capability equipment, the the focus of the assistance that we've provided and that we continue to provide week by week, um, is to help the Ukrainians defend themselves. And we believe that that does have a deterrent effect, does put them in a position, if Russia attacks, to be able to capably and successfully defend themselves. That's the whole point, Jake, is to put the Ukrainians in a position not to attack Russia, but to defend themselves in the face of a Russian attack. And that's the focus of our assistance.
1: I want to read a quote from the New York Times. Uh, this is by a Russia expert, Laila Sheptova. Quote, Western partners clearly have yet to work out how to respond to the Kremlin's policy of suspense by forcing the world to guess what Russia's up to and pursuing mutually contradictory policy lines simultaneously. The Kremlin keeps the West disoriented, accustomed to functioning and rational, risk-averse ways. The West doesn't know how to react to such organized chaos. It's a, it's a well-written uh, argument about the fact that we are living in one world, uh, determined and uh, predicated on rational acts that, that Putin is not necessarily in. And that creates a situation where it seems like the U.S. is constantly a step behind Russia. And The Biden administration, in this case, playing defense. What's your response to
5: that? Look, I think if you go back to October and November, weeks and weeks ago, when we started talking about this, we laid down a very clear, straightforward line, and we have stuck to that line day in, day out, week in, week out, no matter what the Russians say or do. And that line involves two basic thrusts. One thrust is to indicate to the Russians that there will be severe costs to pay if they go ahead in Ukraine, including economic costs, force posture and capabilities moving east, and support to Ukraine. The other thrust is a diplomatic thrust to say that we are prepared, along with our allies and partners, to talk about issues related to European security. At this point, we're ready either way. If Russia wants to continue on the path of diplomacy, we're ready to continue on it. If Russia wants to move forward with a military escalation, we are ready to respond. So my view is that we have had a clear, firm, and consistent policy. And in fact, have been out front in raising the alarm about what, what Russia's doing and clarifying ourselves and our allies what we would do in response. Texas Republican Senator Ted
1: Cruz's legislation to sanction the Nord Stream 2 natural gas pipeline from Russia to Western Europe was defeated in the Senate, even though a majority of senators supported it. It, it did not break, essentially, a Democratic filibuster. Ukraine wanted that bill to pass. How has the administration defended its decision to Ukraine, because we know the State Department was, was lobbying Democratic
5: senators to vote against the sanctions. I've spoken with my Ukrainian counterpart, the National Security Advisor of Ukraine, seven times in the past month. We've talked about every aspect of this crisis, including Nord Stream 2. And the answer, Jake, is very simple. We need transatlantic unity in order to stand up effectively to Russia no matter what they do. And that transatlantic unity rests in no small part on the United States and Germany coming together around a package of severe economic measures if Russia invades. What kind of sense does it make for us to undermine our relationship with Germany in a decisive way right now when we're trying to build that unity? It makes no sense. And then secondly, and this is a critical point for your viewers to understand, There is no gas currently going through the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. There will not be for months at least. And we have made clear to the Russians that that pipeline is at risk if they move further into Ukraine. That is leverage for us. You slap sanctions on it right now, you take that leverage away. So from our perspective, the right thing to do is to continue on the course we're on right now. There isn't gas flowing through the pipeline. It sits there as leverage for the United States, for Europe, and frankly, for Ukraine. And we are unified with Germany, our European allies, speaking with one voice against Russian aggression.
1: While I have you, I want to turn to North Korea in the little time we have left. South Korean officials say that the North fired two suspected ballistic missiles early today. This comes just days after another ballistic missile launch caused a temporary scramble when it appeared briefly that the missile could hit the U.S., the FAA, as you know, grounded some airplanes on the West Coast. Was that urgency just precautionary, or is there something new in the intelligence that sparked something as drastic as a ground stop in the U.S.?
5: It was purely precautionary. Uh, there was nothing in our, the information that we have with respect to that launcher or any launch that we've seen of late uh, that it threatened the United States. These launches do threaten— the Republic of Korea, South Korea, and Japan, are allies. And we are in close coordination with our allies to make sure that we have a firm response, including sanctions that we imposed this week. Look, our goal here, Jake, is the complete denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. We're prepared to engage in serious and sustained diplomacy to get there, but we'll respond firmly if there continue to be these uh, missile launches and provocations.
1: All right, Jake, I have lots more questions about Iran and China and the Middle East, but I know you have to go, so please come back soon so we can talk more substance. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan, thank you. Thank you. Some small signs the Omicron wave may be retreating from parts of the United States. That's next. Plus, off the court and on the verge of being kicked out, tennis star Novak Djokovic is meeting with Australian immigration officials right now after being told to pack his bags. In our health lead, in the Northeast, COVID cases are on the downswing as hospitalizations across the entire country are still surging, crippling the nation's health care systems. And now, FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, is helping struggling hospitals by deploying military medical teams to six new states and giving more money and more flexibility to governors who enlist their National Guard in this mission. As CNN's Nick Watt reports for the 19 states, that have fewer than 15% of their ICU beds left? Well, this help cannot come soon enough.
5: This administration
0: placed all of their eggs in vaccination.
7: There are doctors who agree with those Democratic senators that the Biden administration has been too reactive to Omicron, not proactive.
8: We saw South, uh, South Africa getting ravaged
9: with this virus. We knew that it was highly transmissible, but we didn't ramp up our testing capacity.
7: Reasons to be cheerful. West Virginia's COVID-19 positive governor is feeling better, saying, without question, the fact that I chose to get vaccinated and boosted saved my life. That's all there is to it. And this was the map beginning of last week. Cases rising rapidly almost everywhere except Maine. Today, there's a lot less deep red. Most of the Northeast looking better.
0: I'm very encouraged that case counts are dropping now uh, in this area, uh, unmistakably.
7: Still nationwide, averaging nearly 800,000 new infections every day. There are now twice as many new infections a day than there are people getting their first vaccine shot. Walgreens and CVS now temporarily closing some stores on weekends due to staff shortages. The National Guard deployed to hospitals in some states and one Maryland school district now asking for guard members to drive school buses. New York City's new mayor, determined to keep schools in person, is now open to other options.
10: If we're able to put in place a temporarily remote option, we're welcome to do so. Oh, and
7: we're still waiting to hear how the Biden administration will get more good masks out there and still waiting for the CDC to give us information that's already out there.
11: We are preparing an update to the information on our mask website to best reflect the options that are available to people, as you note, and the different levels of protection different masks provide.
7: But we do now know how you can get your hands on some of those free at home tests promised by the Biden administration. A website, covidtests.gov, launches next Wednesday. But I wouldn't rely on this site for all of your testing needs. It will be limited to four tests per household. And once you place your order, we're told it will take seven to 12 days for those tests to ship. Jake.
1: All right, Nick Watt. Thanks so much. Joining us now to discuss Michael Osterholm He's the director of the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy at the University of Minnesota. Uh, thanks for joining us. So you, you. you have developed a, a bit of a reputation, I think it's fair to say, for being the voice of doom and gloom. Not that I should note, not that your dire predictions have been proven wrong d- throughout this pandemic. So but let me just ask you, are you seeing any signs of hope at this stage of the pandemic?
3: Well, of course, the the news of the cases uh, peaking out and potentially starting to drop in the Northeast is very good news. But I think, uh, if anything, I hope my predictions have been reality-based and time-tested. And uh, I said uh, five weeks ago that we would be hitting this uh, viral blizzard, which is we are now in. And I think we still have four more weeks, probably as a nation, uh, where we're going to see very high levels of cases. Uh, We're going to see major, major challenges in our healthcare system. And as a country, the economy as we know it, and I'm not talking about money economy, I'm talking about critical services, food, pharmaceutical drugs, etc., are going to be severely challenged.
1: You know that there are many states in the country, generally red states, where people, adults, got vaccinated and now are just living their lives. They're not masking, they didn't get their kids vaccinated, and they look at people like you and me who who see uh, more urgency in this and think we don't know what you're going through or why you're freaking out about this. What do you say to those people?
3: Well first of all, let's divide the uh, country into two parts. There are those that are vaccinated and those that are unvaccinated or only partially vaccinated. The data are clear and compelling with Omicron that those who are fully vaccinated are are having a much, much lower risk of either being hospitalized, serious illness or death. Those that are not vaccinated, we are still seeing major challenges. Right now, we see in this healthcare system in this country, literally challenges more than we even saw in the early surges of what's happening uh, or has happened with with COVID. So it's not as somehow that Omicron, while often thought as a milder disease, it is on an individual basis, but the overall number of people being infected is so high that we're actually right now seeing as many hospitalizations as many icu admissions as we saw during the worst surge that we've had
1: so you co-wrote an op-ed in the washington post about in-person learning for for, skid, for kids you write quote safety implies an absence of risk while we can and must implement tools to make schools safer we know that transmission can and will occur in these settings particularly with omicron Existing recommendations from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention will not remedy the situation, especially the erroneous notion that three feet of distancing can prevent the spread in educational settings. So assuming that we all agree that it's important for kids to learn in school, given the emotional, psychological and academic damage that we saw uh, in the first year or so of the pandemic, what do you think the CDC should be telling schools to do so kids can learn in person in as safe a way as possible?
3: Well, you know, again, let's just take a step back. We all want kids in school. That's not a debate. We do know that transmission of this virus will occur to kids, by kids, with kids, whether they're in school or they're at home. The whole point of what we emphasize there is, how do you actually safely run a school if you have 30 to 35% of the teachers, the support staff, and the bus drivers out? And that's what's been happening all across the country. And so what we said is just give it three to four weeks and understand that this is not a semester. This is not for the rest of the year, but just common sense should say, if nobody's going to be there in the school to watch over my kid, is that really a safe environment to put them in? And just know we just have to get through this surge.
1: You mean you have it be virtual for three to four weeks?
3: Virtual, however we can. Uh, there are those who are adamantly not do virtual because they believe that that gives in to their promise that they basically would not uh, hold uh, online learning classes. I think too many politicians have made too many statements, you know, under any, no under any condition will we not have schools. That's just, you know, if we had a big blizzard like we're gonna see right now in large parts of the country, people would shut down and not feel like somehow that they violated the children's learning experience. I'm just saying for the next three to four weeks when you have so many teachers, support staff, and uh, bus drivers, we don't have any choice. And for parents who say, but I gotta work, which I understand, just know we're gonna continue to see more and more of the kids sick themselves who will be home with likely sick parents during this next three to four weeks anyway.
1: Michael Osterholm, thank you so much. Uh, Stay warm during the blizzard. Next, we're going to talk to the governor of one of the states where the federal government is sending military medical teams to help hospitals. Stay with us. Sticking with our health lead, states are cutting back services amid crippling staff shortages brought on by the Omicron wave. Washington state is halting all non-urgent medical procedures, California is making it easier for schools to hire replacement teachers. And Oregon says the variant has become so widespread that it is outpacing the state's ability to track the spread. Hoping to provide some relief, the Biden administration announced today that it is giving governors more flexibility to try to use National Guard members to support hospitals. Here to discuss New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy, a Democrat. Governor Murphy, you and other governors are on the front line dealing with the Omicron wave as hospitalizations reach record highs. How is the Garden State, how is New Jersey dealing with the surge?
12: Listen, Jay, good to be back, first of all. Uh, you're getting me at, after a good couple of days, good in the context of still 20-odd thousand positive tests, just under 6,000 hospitalizations. But the positive tests have begun to creep down. We've got two days in a row with 100 fewer folks in the hospital than the day before. We've been clobbered, as you know, but it feels like we may be seeing early sides of that light at the end of the tunnel.
1: You've already deployed uh, your state's National Guard to support long-term care facilities and vaccine distribution sites dealing with the staffing shortages brought on by the COVID uh, wave. FEMA says that it is expanding flexibility for governors such as yourself to deploy the National Guard to also support hospitals. Um, what other options might that give you?
12: Well, the National Guard for moment one in this uh, pandemic has been uh, indispensable, as you rightfully point out, they're now in long-term care uh, facilities and helping vaccines, but uh, have, the, the more flexibility you have to deploy the outstanding members, uh, the, the, the more alternatives you've got. And As you rightfully also point out, staffing, you know, early in the, in the pandemic, in New Jersey at least, the, the constraining factors were beds, PPE, ventilators. Today, as we sit here, while the bed numbers are up and, and all of that is a reality, staffing is the big challenge. So any amount of resources we can get uh, to come in and back and fill uh, is is welcome. Uh, and, and we're doing just that.
1: Today, several Senate Democrats sent a stinging letter to the White House saying that the Biden administration has fallen short in making testing readily available. President Biden says he's going to per- per- purchase an additional 500 million tests But the tests are needed now. Um, Why do you think the Biden administration has been so slow on this?
12: I can't give you uh, an assessment necessarily of that, Jake. But they have been, uh, as far as we're concerned, very reliable partners uh, across the whole spectrum, including testing. Um, But clearly, listen, Omicron is uh, every time you think you got this thing figured out, you're humbled. Uh, It takes... Uh, a turn you don't expect, and eight out of 10 of them are negative. And Omicron, I think, uh, just drenched the country uh, in this disease, perhaps less, thankfully less lethal, but with a lot more cases. And I suspect that has a lot to do with it. But we welcome whatever steps they're taking right now to get us more tests, we'll take them, I promise you.
1: So President Biden also says he's going to deploy military medical teams to six hard hit states, including New Jersey. Is the Biden administration doing enough to help right now in the middle of this wave?
12: I think so. I mean, they're one of the hospitals they're going to is University Hospital in Newark, New Jersey. And it's the one hospital that the state actually operates. And we needed that help uh, and we deeply appreciate it. So whether it's loosening of the National Guard restrictions or that strike team, uh, as you mentioned, testing, uh, vaccine supplies, FEMA has been a great partner uh, and we've needed it, by the way. Uh, God knows from moment one, we've needed a strong, robust federal response. And for the most part, we're getting it.
1: So the U.S. Supreme Court, as you know, blocked President Biden's vaccine mandate for large businesses. Um, You have a vaccine mandate in New Jersey, I believe, for state employees and for teachers and staff at schools. Do you have any plans to push a vaccine mandate for private businesses or any other group in New Jersey?
12: At this moment, uh, no, although the, the plan the Supreme Court rejected was either a vaccine mandate or a testing option, so which is why I'm surprised uh, that they ran afoul of that. I'm, I'm with the president on that one. I, I, I think you're clearly going to see this because the Supreme Court upheld the health care uh, mandate. So, yes, you're going to see in New Jersey uh, the reality here, as you will everywhere else, in hospitals and long-term care. Uh, But beyond that, I don't see it in the private sector. But it's strong encouragement to either be vaccinated or a testing uh, opt-out. And I suspect that'll continue to be the case. All
1: right, Democratic Governor Phil Murphy, our our thoughts uh, are with the people of New Jersey. Thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me, Jake. Right now, tennis superstar Novak Djokovic is meeting with Australian immigration officials. This after he was told to pack his bags again. Stay with us. Breaking news for you in our sports lead right now in moments. Unvaccinated tennis star Novak Djokovic is going to be detained in a quote, undisclosed location after the number one seed in the Australian Open got his visa revoked for a second time over his refusal to get the life saving vaccine. Joining us now from Melbourne, Australia, CNN's Phil Black, Phil Uh, Djokovic, right now meeting with immigration officials. Is that right?
13: Yeah, Jake, under the terms agreed in court late last night. this hour, Djokovic is handing himself over to Australian officials. He will be allowed to visit his lawyer's office under close guard. But tonight, once again, Novak Djokovic will be sleeping in an Australian detention centre. The latest volley landing this match in court served by Australia's Immigration Minister Alex Hawke, cancelling Novak Djokovic's visa a second time, citing health and good order grounds on the basis that it was in the public interest to do so. In a quickly convened court hearing, Djokovic's lawyer claimed the minister's reasoning is very different from everything argued in this case so far. The underlying new rationale is not a direct risk to others. It's that Mr Djokovic, being in Australia, in Melbourne in particular, will excite anti-vax sentiment. That's the point. A radically different approach. The matter will likely be heard by a court in detail on Sunday, keeping alive Djokovic's hopes of a quick legal win which would allow him to play in Monday's opening round of the Australian Open. But no player has ever prepared for a Grand Slam title like this. Once again, the world's number one tennis player must spend the weekend detained by Australia's border force. Cancellation means mandatory detention. Abul Rizvi is a former senior official in Australia's Immigration Department. He says politically the Australian government had no choice but to try again. But it's a high-stakes move. Because there is the possibility that if they push through with this, they lose. And that means more humiliation. Yes, they will be very aware that legally they could lose
7: this case. and, And that would be truly embarrassing, you know. It would be a really bad look. I mean, the, the, the real implication is how badly Australia looks in
13: the eyes of the world if, if it loses a second court case. One immigration lawyer says the minister's powers are wide and not easily changed.
4: They would have to articulate very strong grounds that the minister made a jurisdictional error. And under Australian immigration laws, I believe that would be a difficult hurdle for them to jump.
13: This unprecedented saga may finally be approaching a resolution, one that could carry powerful consequences for Australian politics and the career of one of the greatest tennis players of all time. Jake, the insight we've had so far suggests the coming legal debate is going to be very different to what we've heard before. No one's going to be talking about whether Djokovic was right in thinking he could enter the country unvaccinated because he recently recovered from COVID-19. Instead, the focus is going to be whether or not Djokovic is a risk to the Australian public or might be a risk to the Australian public because his presence here could encourage other vaccine sceptics.
1: All right, Phil Black in Melbourne, Australia, for us. Thanks so much. Millions of people are about to get walloped by Mother Nature, who has a massive winter storm. What is being done to make sure drivers don't sit on the highway for 27-plus hours again? Stay with us. International, a powerful winter storm is about to hit around half the country. We're talking heavy snow, sleet, freezing rain. Virginia, notably, is taking note deploying crews now to pretreat the roads. You will recall that storm not long ago with the inadequate Virginia response, the one that had drivers stranded on I-95 upwards of 24 hours. CNN meteorologist Jennifer Gregg is tracking what's to come. Jennifer, this new system could also be crippling.
11: Oh, it really could. And I do think when the system is said and done, the ice component to this is what people are really going to be talking about. You can see that ice storm warning now into effect across portions of South Carolina. That has just happened within the last hour. But more than 50 million people under winter storm Warnings, weather advisories for this winter storm. So right now you can see the snow is already coming down in places like Iowa, where they could see six to 12 inches of snow. And this system is really just going to dive due south. And a lot of these areas will get rain and then it'll switch to a wintry mix and then they'll get snow. And then as the system reaches the south and southeast, that's where the forecast gets even more tricky because just a difference of a couple of degrees can mean the difference if someone is going to get all rain frozen precipitation meaning freezing rain or snow so it is going to be sometimes just a game time call is what determine what we're going to get you can see through north louisiana potential for icing through even places like Atlanta could get some uh, sleet, freezing rain, and then possibly a switch over to snow. But across South Carolina and even North Carolina, that's really where we're going to be watching for ground zero when we're talking about the icing potential. We're talking about uh, roads will be completely impossible to travel on. We could see down trees, down power lines. That means power outages at a time where we are going to see freezing temperatures, temperatures well below freezing after this passes. And so that could be trouble for this region. Snowfall continuing on Sunday on the backside of this. Then it crawls up the I-95 corridor. I do think that the I-95 corridor in the big cities will mostly be rain. They could get a A quick shot of snow on the front end, but mostly rain. So here are the ice totals through Sunday. You can see the different forecast models still not agreeing completely. But even if we go on the low end, see outside of Charlotte forecasting half inch to three quarters of an inch of ice, that's enough to just devastate a city and also uh, weigh down those power lines. It only takes, Jake, about half an inch of ice to add 500 pounds to a power line.
1: Jennifer, in in the the previous storm, transportation officials said they could not pretreat the roads because the rainfall before the snow would have washed it away. Uh, Quickly, if you can, is that going to be an issue this time?
11: I think so. I think it will be an issue. You're going to have rain and then it's quickly going to be switching over. You have a small, small window of time. To get that treatment on the road. I was talking to somebody from uh, Minnesota Department of Transportation and they were telling me that you have to be pre-staged and ready to get those plows out. But some of these cities in the South, Atlanta, for example, we only have about 40 plows. So that's not near enough to cover the entire city in a short amount of time, Jake.
1: All right, Jennifer Gray, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Just moments ago, two of the Oath Keepers went before federal judges arraigned on the most serious charges yet for the insurrection, seditious conspiracy. Stay with us. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, for the third time in two weeks, the United States is facing ballistic threats. Just hours after North Korea threatens a stronger reaction, they fire two more ballistic missiles. Plus, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention just tried to clarify its mask recommendations, but they may have missed the mark. What do you need to know about masks and how to spot fake ones? And leading this hour, the wheels of justice turning. The leader of the far-right extremist group, the Oath Keepers and another member of the group make their appearances in federal courts. Both arraigned on the most serious charges to date in relation to January 6, Seditious conspiracy. Prosecutors allege the Oath Keepers armed themselves for battle and coordinated a plan to go to war in order to stop the peaceful transfer of presidential power. We've also learned these charges almost didn't happen. People briefed on the matter, say that Attorney General Merrick Garland initially balked at the higher charges, but over time the overwhelming evidence changed his mind. The charging documents allege in stunning detail extensive planning by these 11 de- defendants from encrypted communications to purchases of weapons and tactical gear, paramilitary training, even a plot to dock a boat near the Capitol, a boat loaded with weapons. CNN's Paula Reed starts us off this hour with the case prosecut- prosecutors are building. <laughs>
14: of the Oath Keepers, Stuart Rhodes, made an initial appearance in court today in Texas as one of the first people charged with seditious conspiracy related to the U.S. Capitol attack.
15: Even the government says that they're accusing them of an organizational role. They admit that they did not commit any violence. They did not hurt any police officers. They did not damage any property. But they're charging them as being conspirators, um, the organizers or, or aiders and abettors, that sort of thing.
14: But a detailed indictment lays out a sprawling, methodical plot to disrupt the counting of 2020 electoral votes. Starting in the days after the election, when Rhodes allegedly told his supporters, we aren't getting through this without a civil war. Prosecutors allege Rhodes and his 10 co-defendants traveled from across the country to D.C. with stockpiled weapons, ammunition and other tactical equipment, Video from January 6th captures Oath Keepers wearing military gear forcing their way into the building in a military stack formation. Prosecutors say the group even stationed quick reaction forces outside D.C. to rush into the Capitol if needed and that Rhodes was planning for violence well beyond January 6th. Rhodes' estranged wife also spoke to to CNN. CNN.
11: He sees himself as a great leader of He almost has his own mythology of himself, and I think he almost made it come true as seeing himself as some sort of figure in history.
14: Meanwhile, some Trump allies, like Senate Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, are refusing to voluntarily cooperate with the House Select Committee investigating January 6th. Even though McCarthy previously supported an investigation and said that President Trump admitted responsibility for the attack, CNN surfacing this interview from shortly after the riot.
16: I say he has responsibility. He told me personally that he does have some responsibility. I think a lot of people do.
14: Yet on Thursday, McCarthy said he could not recall such conversations. I, I'm not sure what call you're talking about. But other Trump allies are willing to talk. On Thursday, former New York City police commissioner and close ally of Rudy Giuliani, Bernard Carrick, spoke with the committee virtually for over eight hours. And today, former Acting Defense Secretary Christopher Miller also spoke with investigators. CNN has learned that Attorney General Merrick Garland was initially reluctant to bring the rarely used seditious conspiracy charge, but people briefed on the matter say federal investigators spent months building the case with help from cooperators, internal communications among the Oath Keepers, and Rhodes himself even provided an interview to the FBI. if convicted. The charge carries up to 20 years in prison. Jake. All right,
1: Paula Reed, thank you so much. Let's go now to CNN's Ed Lavender, who's in Plano, Texas, just outside Dallas, where the leader of the Oath Keepers, a far-right group, just appeared in court. Ed, you were able to watch this hearing. Walk us through what
8: happened.
10: Well, it was a brief hearing. Uh, Stuart Rhodes... Uh, showing up in a uh, dark uh, T-shirt and jeans before the judge. Uh, He waived his right to have the 48-page indictment uh, read out loud in the courtroom. But attorneys for Stuart Rhodes say right now they are focused on getting him out of jail while he awaits trial. And the judge has uh, announced that uh, next Thursday they will hold a detention hearing where both sides, prosecutors and defense attorneys, can present evidence to determine whether or not Stuart Rhodes will be Uh, held uh, in jail and confined until his trial. He's facing five federal criminal counts, including uh, that charge of uh, uh, seditious conspiracy. All of these uh, face up to uh, 20 years in prison if he is uh, convicted. Rhodes appeared very calm, uh, kind of unfazed by everything that was going on, even as he was standing there in the courtroom uh, shackled and handcuffed today.
1: Jake? Ed Lavendera, thank you so much. Joining us now, George Conway, a conservative lawyer, husband, of course, of Kellyanne Conway, who was counselor to former President Donald Trump. George was considered at one point to, uh, for the role of uh, Solicitor General. Um, George, the Justice Department is filing its most serious charges yet in its investigation into the January six uh, uh, attack. Seditious conspiracy charges against 11 attendants. It's a very high bar to prove in court. Uh, what do you make of the filing?
15: Well, I mean, the filing is extraordinary in the amount of detail that it provides. I mean, an incredible amount of work had to have gone in by the FBI and by the U.S. Attorney's Office to prepare this indictment. It contains a lot more evidence than you ever actually need to charge somebody. And what it shows, though, is that the the seditious conspiracy charges fit like a glove here. I mean, they were clearly what what, what seditious conspiracy prohibits is, uh, is a conspiracy to, by force, either overthrow the government or to undermine or or, or hinder and delay the um, execution of any law of the United States. And that includes the laws in particular here that were cited in the indictment, which are the 12th and 20th Amendments of the Constitution and the Electoral Count Act of 1887, all of which guarantee the peaceful transfer of power. And it's clear that this was a long conspiracy designed to, 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 to to, to delay, if not prevent, the transfer of power. Mm. And it goes to the heart of our democracy.
1: uh, We should note Stuart Rhodes entered a not guilty plea in court today. I want to play part of the defense for Rhodes that came from his attorney who spoke to CNN today. Take a listen.
0: I want to see the entire
15: documents because the planning was about events in Florida. It was about December 12th. It was about November 14th. And it was about their somewhat fanciful idea that they thought the president was going to call them up under the Insurrection Act, which I don't pretend to understand, but but they were quite fixated on the idea that Trump was going to activate them as a militia under the Insurrection Act, um, and uh, so we we think that most of the, the quotes are, are misrepresented.
1: What do you make What do you make of that defense, George?
15: Well, it, it, it's basically he, he's hanging his own clients with, with the rope that, that he's dangling because he's basically saying if they they were there. With the the, conspiring to use force, because there's no legal way that Donald Trump could have authorized them to use force um, on on behalf of of himself in order to maintain uh, power illegally. So it's just I mean, the fact that he's, you know, he's admitting what's what's the core element of the indictment, which is that these guys were stashing weapons away in. Uh, in, 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 a, in a motel in Boston, uh, right across right across the river from Washington, ready and and had something called a quick reaction force, they called it in right. fake military jargon, to bring these people across the, the river um, and to commit violence. So it was a conspiracy to do to 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 commit sedition by force, which is exactly what the statute prohibits.
1: So prosecutors say that the day Trump was projected to have lost the election in 2020, Rhodes wrote in a chat, quote. We must now do what the people of Serbia did when Milosevic stole their election, refused to accept it, and march en masse on the nation's capital. Now, that lie, the stolen election lie, is the same rhetoric Trump repeats to this day. Um, why do you think Republicans on Capitol Hill and on other news stations, MAGA Media, loyal to Trump. Why do you think they're so unwilling to call him out and put an an end to this lie, which is obviously, and we all said it before January 6th, dangerous?
15: Right. Well, first of all, they're afraid of him. They're afraid of his ability to mobilize the base against them and cause them to face primary opponents. And secondly, the more they talk about it, the more they sh- they will show they don't want to show how closely aligned uh, the president of the United States was with people such as these oath keepers because they were trying to accomplish exactly what he was trying to accomplish, which was to stop, delay, or hinder the electoral college vote count and therefore allow him. It wouldn't have worked, but allow him to stay in office. They were trying to accomplish the same thing, which is essentially to 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 overthrow the constitution
1: house minority leader kevin mccarthy is now refusing to speak with the january 6th committee he claims he has nothing else to offer than what he said publicly cnn's k-file found an interview that mccarthy did with the california radio station the week after the insurrection take a listen
16: Look, i spoke to the president during the riot i was the first person to call him i told him to go on national tv tell these people to stop it he said he didn't know what was happening went to the news then to work through that um, I asked the president if he has a responsibility. You know what? The president does. But you know what? All of us do. He didn't say go get the members, what he did with rally. I say he has responsibility. He told me personally that he does have some responsibility.
1: And the sources tell CNN that McCarthy also made similar comments to Republicans privately. But Manu Raju asked him yesterday, McCarthy says he doesn't remember any phone call. What is, what is Manu talking about? What, what do you make of McCarthy going to such great lengths? Um, to avoid telling well, the truth, whether to the committee or to the american people
15: yeah. well he 's either lying or he needs to see a very, very good ne- neurologist because he 's got an incredible case of amnesia that 's a conversation no one could ever possibly um, forget and you know his willingness to lie is is is, is akin to basically trump 's willingness to lie and and the entire uh, uh, a lot of the Republicans in the House are are willing now to lie about what happened on January 6th, and Trump is saying that November 3rd was the real insurrection and that these are great people and patriots and people who are ushered in lovingly by the police. I mean, you know, there, there is just this huge fantasy world that, 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 that Trump and McCarthy and others are creating about January 6th, which is every bit, you know, it's, it's another set of lies, every bit as bad as, if not worse than the, 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 the election lie that started it all. It's just the, it's just a total fantasy world, and and they're just there's a fear of acknowledging the truth because the truth does not shed shed good light on them, All right, to say George, the least.
1: George Conway, good to see you again. It's been too long. Come back and talk to us more. Thanks, Jake. Any moment, the CDC could start pushing higher quality masks like the N95. Coming up next, we're going to take a look at why those kinds of masks work better and what you need to know to avoid buying a a fake one. Plus, President Biden probably cannot wait for this week to be over. From the Supreme Court to Democrats, it's been a bad week. Stay with us. Here's some breaking news for you in our health lead right now. The CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, just moments ago put out new updated information for masking. The headline, wear the most protective mask you can that fits well and that you will wear consistently, unquote. There remain a lot of questions. Why are certain masks best? How much should we spend on a mask? How often should we replace them? How do we even know if it's fake? Thankfully, we have CNN chief medical correspondent, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, with answers to your questions.
16: In the United States, we are being drenched with Omicron a variant so contagious that it has caused daily cases to double in the past two weeks. Now, just like you would put on a better raincoat in a bad storm, we need better masks more than ever. Our best bet, an N95 mask.
5: If you're going to wear a mask, wear the best masks possible.
16: Aaron Collins, a self-proclaimed mask nerd, is a mechanical engineer with a background in aerosol science.
5: There's significant improvement in the amount of aerosol that you're gonna be exposed to when everyone's wearing an N95 and you're wearing an N95. That's why they're such a powerful tool.
16: I think it's worth reminding people why exactly they work so well. It has to do with the actual material. There are electrostatically charged fibers in here. So it's not just filtering particles, it's actually attracting particles. Kinda like a blanket might attract your socks in the dryer. Also, it works well, not just for air that's potentially coming in, but also for air that's potentially going out. Now, one key thing about the N95 masks is you gotta make sure they actually fit really well. Having these two bands around the back of your head and then making sure no air is escaping around your eyes or your cheeks or your chin. Studies have shown that cloth masks can have about 75% leakage, a surgical mask, 50%. But with an N95, it can go down to as low as 1%. Even with the CDC's updated mask guidance, there is still no explicit recommendation to wear an N95. However, on Thursday, President Joe Biden announced a step in the right direction. Next week, we'll announce how we are making high-quality masks available to American people for free. If you buy your own, the average cost of an N95 is just under $2. That's according to Project N95, a nonprofit dedicated to educating people about high filtration masks. But how to pick the right one can be bewildering. There are more than 6,000 different models of NIOSH approved respirators, NIOSH being the National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health a federal agency that evaluates safety equipment like masks.
11: It's an incredibly difficult market um, for consumers to, um, to navigate. And unfortunately, in this, in this circumstance, bad information could cost someone their life.
16: Kelly Carruthers is the director of government affairs at Project 95. The problem, she says, is that counterfeits have infiltrated the market. You can find a list of NIOSH-approved products on the CDC's website, but here are some of the things to look for. Remember those head straps? NIOSH-approved N95s are always going to have head straps instead of ear loops. And the mask itself will say NIOSH, along with the manufacturer name and an identifying number starting with TC.
12: If you can tolerate an N95, do it. If you want to get a KN95 fine, Wearing any mask is better than no mask at all, but there is a gradation of capability of preventing you from getting
16: infected and from you transmitting it to someone else. So we should be wearing the best possible mask that we can get. The KN95s Dr. Fauci just mentioned, they're another type of high-filtration mask. But finding the right one of these can be even trickier. That's because KN95 is a Chinese standard meaning none of these are currently approved in the United States. Even worse, the CDC says about 60% of these masks are fakes. Yes, even the ones you buy online.
11: There's no way to tell um, if a manufacturer has met those qualifications or not. It is, it is very um, difficult for, a, for someone to discern whether or not it's a, it's a safe mask.
16: Now, that doesn't mean all CAN-95s are bad, but it does mean you're going to have to do more homework such as checking to see if the manufacturer has a valid lab report.
5: We need to recommend better high-filtration masks, and we need a mass standard, a general public mask standard, so that we can cover all of the range of masks that people want to use. We could go back to pretty much normal, quote-unquote, life if we all had really good respirators.
16: Something so simple that could help us slow the pandemic. Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN, reporting.
1: And our thanks to Sanjay for that report. Too little, too late. That's what members of the Senate are calling the White House's plan for free COVID tests and masks. And this scathing critique is coming from a bunch of Democrats. Stay with us. Topping our politics lead today, President Biden eager to reset the narrative today after a brutal week of defeats and bad news. The president touting the success of his bipartisan infrastructure bill And making clear he was able to achieve something that eluded his predecessors. Joining us live to discuss, CNN Chief White House Correspondent Caitlin Collins and Chief Congressional Correspondent Manu Raju. Caitlin, President Biden obviously campaigned, making the argument that he had the chops to handle a lot of crises at once and that he knew how to make deals in Washington. And this week put a lot of that to the test.
2: Yeah, and he's got this press conference coming up next week, Jake. And I was looking back and thinking about his first formal press conference last March, of course, shortly after he had taken office. And he was talking about the fact that he believed, you know, he could make deals because he knew the Senate so well, because he served there for over three decades. And we've seen just how much of a challenge the Senate makeup currently as it stands now has been for President Biden. And of course, just this week when when it comes to the voting rights legislation that was brought basically completely to a halt. With Senator Manchin and Senator Sinema saying, yeah, they don't support the president's call to make an exception to the filibuster to get voting rights legislation passed. And so I think you're just seeing the, the challenge for President Biden. And the White House is openly acknowledging that, yes, his domestic agenda and his legislative agenda is being hampered by those incredibly slim majorities that they have.
1: And Manu, on Capitol Hill, the Biden's agenda is in bad shape, at least right now. His push for election reform doesn't seem to be going anywhere uh, the, the especially because there aren't the votes to get rid of the filibuster for them. Uh, the future of his economic agenda, build back better, appears bleak. And yet Biden administration says they're going to keep fighting. Is there a path forward for either election reform or build back better?
17: Certainly not on the election bill. And Jake, that had been clear for months that there was no path to get that through. Republicans had no interest in the Democrats' proposals here. They were not going to get 60 votes to overcome a filibuster. Joe Manchin, Kirsten Sinema have been abundantly clear for some time. They would not support any sort of exception to allow this to pass and change the filibuster rules to do just that. But inexplicably to some Democrats and a lot of Republicans, the administration and Chuck Schumer, the Senate Majority Leader, have made this front and center and their agenda, knowing full well that the votes simply are not there. I asked Chuck Schumer a lot earlier this week, why go through this when you know you don't have the votes on this election overhaul bill? He said, we need to have the vote and show where we are. So they will still have that vote next week. It will fail. And this issue, electoral reform is going to be pushed aside. Now that Build Back Better plan, Jake, is on life support. Joe Manchin told me he had that there's been no discussions on this issue since before Christmas. Now he did go to the White House. House last night, but even though getting him on board would require a lot of compromise, trying to get liberals on board, they're going to move closer to the midterm election season, and it's just uncertain how that can come together and get everybody on the same page over the next couple of months.
1: And Caitlin, the Biden administration is facing intense scrutiny from a group of Senate Democrats over the shortage of uh, COVID tests. Not good timing.
2: Yeah, this has been a real weak spot for the White House, where even members of the president's own party have said, Why didn't you ramp up tests sooner than this where we are having this shortage happening right now? Sending this letter to the White House today asking Jeff Zients, who is the president's COVID coordinator, for answers on that. And what went wrong with testing, which, of course, has been a focal point here at the White House for the last several weeks since the Omicron surge took over the United States. And it became quite clear how difficult it was to get your hands on a test. And so when you talk to the administration about this, they will openly acknowledge President Biden himself, saying they should have ordered more tests sooner than they did. Of course, we should note next week that website where you can get a free test is launching, though there will still be a bit of a delay because they're estimating about 7 to 12 days between when you order that test and when it actually gets shipped out to you.
1: And and Manu, uh, I saw an article about Bill Clinton recommending, hey, Joe Manchin, Just pick the parts of the Build Back Better law that you like, and then the Senate can pass that. And then uh, Democrats have something to run on, uh, both the achievement, whatever that is, uh, free daycare or whatever. And then also they can run and campaign on, on the stuff they didn't get. Why is that not on the table?
17: I think that could be on the table, but it's still uncertain exactly where Joe Manchin is, and if he even wants this bill, Jake. He's been concerned that spending to the level that Democrats want, even much less than what Democrats want, still could be too high for him given his concerns over the debt and inflation and his fundamental belief that these programs that they are going to try to make on a temporary basis, maybe fund them for two years. He believes they would go for 10 years or permanently funded. And so it would not actually reflect the true nature to the taxpayer if they were to only provide a couple of years of benefits under the Democrats' proposals here. So there are still some philosophical differences between Joe Manchin and many in his party, and that's what's going to be very difficult to de- de- bridge here. But they will try again, Jake. They will try to get something together. But as we get closer to midterm election season and with the president's uh, approval numbers slumping, it's going to get harder and harder to legislate and get his party on the same page.
1: All right, Manu, Caitlin, thanks to both of you. Let's discuss Van Jones, I want to start with you in that letter from a group of Senate Democrats criticizing the testing shortage. It was signed by Mark Kelly of Arizona, Joe Manchin of West Virginia, John Ossoff of Georgia, Jackie Rosen of Nevada, Kirsten Sinema of Arizona. Uh, what do you make of this public criticism from Democrats of Biden?
18: Uh, if you want a friend in D.C., get a dog. Uh, I, don't, I mean, it, it's, it's not. Uh, it, the Republican Party has a leader uh, that is not always loved, but is always feared. Uh, Democrats have a president who's loved. uh, Joe Biden is beloved in this party, but he's not feared. Uh, What what you're seeing now is a party that is willing to defy this president on his worst week, uh, kick him when he's down, and that's a very bad sign for where Joe Biden is politically. There's only one way for him to go down, which is up, but um, if you want a a friend in in politics in D.C., get
1: a dog. Scott Jennings, the White House is walking back to a degree. President Biden's comments earlier this week comparing. Opponents of election reform and filibuster changes to pass election reform uh, to Jefferson Davis and Bull Connor and George Wallace. Uh, here's Gensaki today.
4: Everybody listening to that speech who's speaking on the level, as my mother would say, would note that uh, he was not comparing them as humans. He was comparing the choice uh, to those figures in history and where they're going to position themselves if they, as, they, as they determine whether they're going to support the fundamental right to vote or not.
1: What do you make of it?
9: Uh, I mean, with all due respect to our good friend, Jen, and I, and I mean that with all sincerity. I mean, if you're not comparing them on a human level, how, I mean, what are you comparing them to? They're humans who did terrible things and made terrible choices and had, you know, terrible views. And Joe Biden was casting anyone who disagrees with him. As though they were them. I mean, it. it or on their side. The he comparison. said. He, he
1: said you're on their side. Is what he said. Yeah.
9: Yeah. And and that's not a side I, I would want to be on. If you're looking to line up histories of uh, people that you don't want to be on their side, I guess I'd put those people on that side. Jen is constantly in a position where she's having to walk back Joe Biden's comments or say, well, here's what he really meant. It happens all the time, and it's been happening since he took office. And so. I, what I make of it is, is that this is a White House that thought they hit a home run and quickly realized uh, that this was a massive swing and a miss by Joe Biden. And it seriously damaged him, I think, in Washington, but also out in uh, in greater America. I think this thing went over like a lead balloon politically, and they now know it.
1: And, and Van, it, it, that, that language definitely didn't win over uh, Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin, the Democrats that have been reluctant to change the filibuster rules, even though they support the election reform bills, it, it didn't work uh, to change their mind on on changing the filibuster rules. Is there any sort of viable path forward with any sort of election reform? You think?
18: Look, I I, sh- I should hope so. I mean, I I hope at some point people can take a deep breath breath and step back and look at where we are. We're now in a situation where both sides. Uh, don't have confidence in our election system. You have Democrats who are concerned about voter suppression, gerrymandering, and voter subversion. You have Republicans that are concerned about voter fraud. Uh, That's an opportunity to come together and get something done positively. Unfortunately, where we are right now, uh, I think the president felt that he needed to signal very strongly to the African American base, that he was doing all that he could, that he understood uh, the frustration there. I think he's, he's, he's crossed that bridge, he's checked that box, but we're now still in the same situation with a possible double legitimacy crisis, neither side accepting the election or feeling good about it. Uh, there's work to be done to bring people together.
1: Scott, obviously uh, there was an effort to overturn the election uh, by Trump and his minions in 2020 and uh, leading up through the inauguration of Joe Biden. Obviously there are efforts right now to, uh, at the state level um, for Trump allies to be elected or appointed to positions so that Who knows? Maybe they will not allow legal votes to be counted. Do you think there's any path? Because I'm sure Senator McConnell does not support such measures. um, Do you think there's any path to any legislation that would prevent what happened in 2020, what almost happened in 2020, from being successful in 2024, something that McConnell could support?
9: Yeah, I do, actually. And and I'm I'm looking back at the uh, infrastructure bill model as Uh, As I think about what could be possible, you know, when that whole bill started out, they had Build Back Better and infrastructure together. And then ultimately it was split and they split off what could pass in a bipartisan majority. And that was the infrastructure bill. I think what actually has bipartisan support in Washington right now is reforming the Electoral Count Act, which would essentially raise the threshold or uh, eliminate the possibility altogether that Congress could upend a legitimate uh, electoral college count, as was attempted, by the way. Uh, in January. And so if you want to find something where I think you have broad support and it could be done right now and signed into law and be germane to what happened on January the 6th, that's it. And I think you would find Republican support for it.
1: All right, Scott and Van, good to see both of you. Thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Be sure to tune in this Sunday morning to CNN State of the Union. I'm going to be talking to the House Majority Whip, Congressman James Clyburn, also Republican Senator Bill Cassidy of Louisiana and Texas Republican Congressman. Mike McCall. It's at 9 a.m. and noon Eastern only on CNN. Coming up, saber rattling, sending ripples across the Pacific, but instead of swords, it's North Korea's missiles raising alarms across the globe. Why the latest aggression surprised the U.S. That's next. In our world lead, new provocations from North Korea, the Kim Jong-un regime firing two suspected short-range ballistic missiles overnight. It's their Third missile launch in just the last two weeks. It comes after North Korea threatened to respond to any new U.S. sanctions with, quote, stronger and certain reaction, unquote. CNN's Oren Lieberman joins us now live from the Pentagon. Orrin, this latest test comes on the heels of Tuesday's launch, which caused a, a bit of a scramble among
19: U.S. officials. Tell us about that. It did, Jake. That's because the initial telemetry readings, essentially the data and the information on where this thing was going, suggested it may have been briefly an ICBM that could have threatened either the Aleutian Islands off the coast of Alaska or perhaps even the West Coast. Now that was quickly revised with more information, either from something like infrared satellites or from radar, and the U.S. realized this was not a threat to the U.S. or to its territory. But in that brief window there, the FAA issued a ground stop for just about 15 minutes for some airports on the West Coast. That was quickly removed, and the FAA hasn't issued a statement other than this is a precautionary measure which we take somewhat often, but this is really not something you see very often. Ground stops, even if only regional, are pretty serious steps. The FAA says they're reviewing the decision-making process that went into that. And, Oren, um, North
1: Korea claims that Tuesday's launch was a hypersonic missile. What are U.S. officials saying about that?
19: Well, the only official U.S. statement about it so far has been that they're assessing what this was and what it wasn't. We haven't gotten more information from that openly, but we have spoken with U.S. officials who have told CNN as well as analysts that this does appear to be a MARV, a maneuverable re-entry vehicle, essentially a type of hypersonic weapon. It doesn't have the gliding ability, the range, the maneuverability of some other hypersonic weapons, but it does have some of that and that shows pretty significant advances in North Korea's weapons technology and where they're going with this. Now, just after this, the U.S. issued sanctions against North Koreans and Russians for essentially working on the ballistic missile program there, but North Korea remains defiant, saying they'll still keep pushing on all of this.
1: Mm. Orrin Lieberman at the Pentagon for us. Thanks so much. He's one of the billionaires launching himself and others into space, but that's not the only thing Sir Richard Branson is sending above the Earth. Sir Richard will join us next. In our out-of-this-world lead, satellites, those machines flying tens of thousands of feet above the Earth, are a crucial piece of our everyday comforts, including GPS or access to thousands of TV channels, accurate weather predictions, and now the spaceflight giant Virgin Galactic is going small. Virgin Orbit, the new spinoff company and brainchild of Sir Richard Branson, fired off its third successful mission to put several small satellites into orbit Thursday afternoon. Joining us now, Virgin Orbit founder and billionaire, Sir Richard Branson, and Virgin Orbit CEO Dan Hart. Sir Richard, let me start with you.
20: First of all, what will these satellites be doing? Oh um, they will be doing a lot of different things. Um, uh, there will be monitoring agriculture um, as one thing. There will be uh, uh, the Ministry of Defense will be putting satellites up to make sure that. Uh, you know, should, should satellites be knocked down in certain parts of the world, they can be uh, replaced quickly. Um, uh, so the, the exciting thing about um, Virgin Orbit is it can, you know, fly to anywhere in the world. It can launch into any orbit um, at, at, at any time, um, and that's the first time that, that that has happened. It's now done it three times in a row, um, very successfully, and. Um, and, and so I think, you know, pe- people, people who need to get satellites up there now know that uh, they have this option that any, ca- any country in the world can now launch um, satellites through Virgin Orbit.
1: And Dan, Virgin Orbit's retrofitted 747 shoots the satellites in rockets from under the wing of the plane. That sounds a little dangerous. Walk us through the preparation and safety
8: measures for launching these small pieces of tech. Well, we ready the, the uh, rocket and the airplane. Uh, on the ground, and we make sure everything is, is good to go and healthy. We fly the, the 747 out to sea uh, to make sure that when the rocket flies, it's in a safe place. We verify that it's good to go, uh, and then we, we release the rocket. The rocket waits a certain number of seconds before it lights its engines, and then it goes active and, and climbs up. So every single part of the process is monitored and is designed for a safe, successful flight. And I will add that this flight that we just did could not have been done with a ground launch rocket in California. Both the orbit that we achieved was the, was the first time this orbit has ever been achieved from Western United States. And, and the weather conditions were such that a ground launch rocket would have been grounded. And, Richard, in November, uh, Russia blew up one of their own satellites as a test.
1: It was widely condemned as reckless because the operation created so much space debris there are thousands of satellites orbiting the earth at this very moment. Why launch more?
20: well, just to let you know one of the one of the satellites that we put up yesterday is designed to uh, mop up um, uh, uh, debris in space um, and, and that's one of the one of the jobs that um, that you know people who who are you know working with us um, are working hard on to make sure that if there is any debris created in space, that uh, it can be got rid of. Um, why? Why do we need more satellites? We need more satellites uh, for connect- connectivity, for monitoring rainforests, for monitoring illegal fishing, uh, to monitoring agriculture. I mean, there's there's, there's incredible amounts of benefits um, for mankind back here on Earth. Um, and space is big, so there's you know there's still plenty plenty of room um, for a lot more satellites and. Um, the other thing is that with low Earth orbit satellites, they will come out of the uh, out of space every five years. They need to be replaced. And, and that's one of the other big advantages that Virgin uh, Galactic, sorry, Virgin Orbit has. Uh, having a Virgin Atlantic seven four seven converted, um, you know, to be able to just take off at 24 hours notice and replace satellites that have fallen out. And
1: Dan, SpaceX is also launching these small uh, satellites on a, on a larger scale, though, in a sort of rocket ride share? Would it be more cost effective to to send a big batch of satellites up all at once like SpaceX? Or or if not, why not?
8: Well, if you want to look at an analogy, I mean, it's the difference between an A380 that is flying everybody from New York to Paris versus, um, you know, point to point transportation in aircraft where uh, business jets and smaller jets need to take people where they want to get to when they want to get there. It's the same for satellites. I mean, they have businesses that they need to um, get revenue-generating uh, a- assets on, on board for. They don't have time to wait. They don't all need to go to the same place. As I mentioned, we went to a very special orbit yesterday. Um, and, uh, and and, and they, they don't want to drift in space for long periods of time. And so it really kind of is the difference between a business jet or a 737 and an A380. And Richard, Time is money.
1: Richard, NASA just released a report showing ocean temperatures hit a record high in 2021. It was also the 45th year in a row with a warmer than normal global temperature. I'm sure you've heard the criticism that rich guys like yourself are flying your rockets into space while people on Earth are suffering from the climate disaster.
20: Uh, How do you respond? Well, I mean, it used to be. Uh, incredibly expensive to the environment to put people into space. Um, we, we have actually brought the environmental cost of putting somebody into space to around about the same price as a, a London to New York and, and back flight on Virgin Atlantic. So uh, it's a dramatic de- decrease in, in, uh, in carbon output. Um, but, you know, but the other major thing is that you know, the technology... That goes into creating uh, these these ventures. I mean, we have a thousand engineers, roughly, working on Virgin Galactic, another thousand uh, working on Virgin Orbit. Um, Dramatically better, and it will do so. And it may even, you know, be the answer to some of the, um, you know, some some of the big problems back. Well, it is the answer to a lot of the big problems back here on Earth. But there may there may also be new, (coughs) sorry, leftover COVID, new new new. um, Uh, new new breakthrough technologies that will come as a result of it.
1: Glad you're feeling better, Sir Richard Branson, Dan Hart. Sir Richard, thank you you so much. Appreciate your time. In our world lead, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu's long political career may be over for good. Sources tell CNN that the former Israeli prime minister is discussing a possible plea deal with Israeli prosecutors. The deal would see Netanyahu given community service After he pleads guilty to corruption charges, a key sticking point in the negotiations is the length of service. If it's longer than three months, prosecutors can insist that the sentence carry with it the stain of moral turpitude, which would bar the 72-year-old from politics for seven years. Netanyahu is the longest-serving prime minister in the history of Israel. He held the office for 15 years. Coming up, tennis star Novak Djokovic is now detained in Australia. a Second time, Bob Costas. We'll join Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room ahead. I will see you Sunday morning.
0: When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store.